This is the Journal of American History podcast for November 2014. Anne Sarah Rubin is Associate Professor of History at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. She is author of A Shattered Nation, The Rise and Fall of the Confederacy, 1861 to 1868, which received the 2006 Avery O'Craven Book Prize in Civil War History. We focused in the podcast today on her new book, Through the Heart of Dixie, Sherman's March and American Memory. Anne, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. It's my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. So in your introduction, Anne, you write that the term Sherman's March is, and these are your words, the most symbolically powerful aspect of the American Civil War, one that has a cultural dominance, perhaps disproportionate to its actual strategic importance. It has come to stand for devastation and destruction, fire and brimstone, war against civilians, and for the Civil War in microcosm. Uh, And this, of course, is what your book is about. But maybe a good place to start us off is just talk about the power uh, and enduring uh, presence of, of this symbol, particularly, but not necessarily only in the American South. I think one way to to answer that is to talk a little bit about how I got started and how I came to this topic, which was sort of a confluence of events when I was back in graduate school in the early 90s. So all around the same couple of years, I saw the Ross McElway documentary, Sherman's March, where he sets out to make a documentary retracing Sherman's March and winds up making a film that's really more of a meditation on his love life or lack of love life with little bits of Sherman interspersed. So so I saw that. I I read Sherman's March in Vietnam by James Reston, which I first decided to read after watching the Ross Spears documentary Long Shadows about the Civil War. And those two, the film and the book, all kind of combined up in my head. And I thought, why is everyone talking so much about Sherman's March? Why is this the big metaphor? Um, and I, I kind of combined that with the fact that, that as a kid, I had read Gone with the Wind and I had seen the movie dozens of times. And it all just seemed like this was a, a topic that would be pretty rich. So that's really how I came to it. And the the endurance of it, I think, is also the power of Sherman's March as a metaphor so that that in the South, people feel it very viscerally, obviously, in Georgia and in the Carolinas. But elsewhere, it's come to be this symbol of devastation and destruction and fire and and the kinds of metaphors that I saw. You know, the, I did all kinds of newspaper keyword searches and I have a Google alert. And, and so it comes up for all kinds of things. The South Bronx in the 70s, where they talk about all these burned out buildings. Uh, there's a quilt pattern called Sherman's March where the around the blocks, you use red fabric, and that's supposed to symbolize the flames. It's, um, it's everywhere. So that's really why I came up with it or why I started to work on this project. Interesting. And your chapters uh, are, are, well, they're about so much, but um, some of the things perhaps it would be interesting for us to talk about, uh, 
very different kinds of white Southerner stories about Sherman, African-American uh, contradictory experiences of of the march and encounter uh, with Sherman's men, common soldiers' perspectives. Uh, I thought really fascinating. Uh, you're writing on post-war travel writers, and then, of course, Sherman's march in public memory and popular culture, particularly, but not only Gone with the Wind, but music and poetry and painting and other commemorative expression. Why don't we start uh, and kind of go through this list? Can you talk some, tell listeners about the the different stories that white Southerners have told about Sherman and the march over time? Sure. I think the stories that we most often think of for white Southerners are stories of devastation and stories of destruction, right? Sherman's marchers came in, they burned my house, they stole my food, they smashed my china, they, they took my jewelry, and then they went on. And there are a lot of these kinds of narratives. I, I call them victimization stories, right? Which makes sense. I mean, these are often recorded in the immediate aftermath. There's, there's a way that Sherman's March, I think, over time comes to serve as the scapegoat for everything that happened in the South in the Civil War. And, and in some ways, even for a lot of the economic troubles after, during Reconstruction and afterwards. But what I also found were lots and lots of stories that are more about salvation that shift the script away from pure victimization. So there's lots of stories about why this house or that house was spared, right? Was it because Sherman was in love with a girl who lived there? Was it because um, somebody put a Masonic emblem on the door and the, the soldiers coming through were Masons? Was it because, you know, the, the woman of the house ran out the front door yelling smallpox, smallpox, and the soldiers stayed away? So all of these stories, I think, are there for a couple of reasons. One is to explain why there are so many houses still standing, right? If the, if the dominant cultural memory of Sherman's March is that it cut this 50-mile swath like a lawnmower strip, but there are still so many antebellum houses standing, particularly in Georgia and North Carolina. You need these reasons, right? There, there has to be a reason that these houses survived. Yeah. And so it's that's some of it. Some of it also are, are there are a lot of stories of people outsmarting Sherman soldiers in different ways, right? They hide things, um, you know, they bury things in the yard or they hide things in beds or, you know, there's lots of stories of women sticking like a wallet or some jewelry in their baby's diapers because, you know, no, no man's going in there. So that there's also all these stories about concealment and outsmarting Shermans that, that again, sort of twist this victimization around. And um, talk a little bit, this kind of bridges us to the very contradictory experiences of, of African-Americans, of, of freed people as Sherman comes through popular memory of and the reality of sexual violence, uh, uh, rape of white women, and also of uh, freed women coming to Sherman's army? I think that the, the question of sexual violence is really the hardest one, I think, to get at. And I am the first to admit that I don't, I deal with it, but I don't have very good evidence with which to, to deal with it. That there's there are not a lot of really well-documented cases. There's one case of a white woman being raped near Milledgeville, Georgia, that it's mentioned in multiple sources. 
Um, I'll admit I didn't look at court martial records, although I talked to um, Susan Barber up at, at Notre Dame of Maryland, who's been working on rape and court martials for years and years, and she didn't have a sense that there were very many involving Sherman's army. And what you also see is, is in these, again, these stories that people tell of Sherman's march, they're mostly told from the white perspective. And so there seems to be this abundant concern that Sherman's men are raping white women, when in reality, I think they're more likely attacking African-American women. But I think that that is, is a, a story that's not told nearly as often. So it's more a sense of an assumption that this has to be going on, because certainly there's plenty of cruelty directed at African-Americans by Sherman soldiers. They're liberators, but they're not necessarily, that's not really their motivation. They're not, they're not marching to liberate. The liberation of, of slaves is a sort of incidental along the route of the march. And so you know, if they come on a, on a plantation and they take all the food, they're stealing food from African-Americans as well as from white Southerners. If they burn down or ransack slave cabins, things like that. And while sometimes they hire African-Americans to work for them, I think there's a lot of, of what today we would say is sort of racist or white supremacy or, or, or you know, exploitation of African-Americans by Sherman soldiers. So uh, this leads really well into um, this vast uh, subject that you've written so well about the contradictory experiences of of the freed people, reflecting in many ways Sherman's own ambivalence uh, about African-Americans. So can you talk with listeners about the experience of freed people as Sherman's men came through? Sherman's men, like I said, so they liberate African-Americans. They, they bring freedom to African-Americans, but then they, they keep moving. And I think that's a big factor in the, the complexity of this experience. These are, this is not an army of occupation. They're moving 10 or 15 miles a day, which means they never spend really more than one night in the same place, except for when they're state, say in Savannah over January. And so for African-Americans, they understand that this is this moment that they're free, but they also, and as we know this from, from so many other historians and so many other places, they have to weigh what to do with that freedom. So several thousand, as many as 25,000 just in Georgia, start following Sherman's army. And they face, I think, the most difficult route of all. Sherman is very explicit that he does not want to have to feed um, African-American women and children and elderly people. He's okay with taking young, strong men into a pioneer corps to work with the Union Army, but he doesn't want to have to deal with anybody else. And the, the problem that comes out of that is he can't stop people from coming. So they're coming. He's telling his commanders to try to leave them behind. The most egregious example of all of this happens at a place called Ebenezer Creek, which is outside of Savannah, when on December 9th, one of Sherman's subordinate commanders, General Jefferson C. Davis, no relation to the Confederate president, um, he is leading his men across uh, on pontoon bridges through a cypress swamp there are African-Americans following them. Behind the African-Americans are Confederate cavalry. And as soon as 
Davis's soldiers are across the swamp, he demands that they pull up the pontoon bridges and not let the African-Americans cross. And it's a completely horrific and chaotic scene where African-Americans, some of them plunge into these waters, many of them drown, um, others wind up being captured by Wheeler's cavalry. And it, in fact, is it causes a real scandal because one of the soldiers writes to Washington, D.C. about this because he's horrified by it. And Sherman finds out about it. Sherman doesn't chastise Davis at all. He has no, no problem with what Davis did, but it leads um, Stanton to come down from Washington, D.C. to Savannah to meet with Sherman, to talk to Sherman about this issue and just Sherman and African-Americans in general. Sherman also had refused to allow African-American troops to serve in his army. And the, the end result of all of that is, and this is where the contradiction is real, is Sherman meets with about two dozen African-American ministers in Savannah and he talks to them and he says, okay, well, what do your people want? And they say, we want land. And what Sherman comes up with is to set aside a swath of land along the coast of South Carolina and Georgia. They call it the Sherman Reserve that has been essentially, quote unquote, abandoned by whites, whites who fled to redistribute that land in 40 acre parcels. And this is the origin of the notion that African-Americans were supposed to get 40 acres and a mule to redistribute this land in 40 acre parcels to African-Americans and have them settle there. It's really radical. There's some evidence that Sherman actually comes up with it because he wants to come up with something so radical that Stanton will reject it. And then he'll sort of have the upper hand. But in fact, Stanton says, oh, this is fantastic. What a great idea. And they actually start to put it into place. It solves Sherman's problem also because then all of these African-Americans who have followed him to Savannah will stay and be resettled. The problem with all of this is that after Lincoln dies and the war is over and Andrew Johnson becomes president, Johnson issues pardons to these southern white landowners. They reclaim their land, and that's the end of this this whole resettlement plan. And And to show that Sherman's heart isn't in it, he doesn't say a word when the plan falls apart in the summer and fall of 1865, because it's not his problem. He doesn't he doesn't care. Yes, I know. No, you you write about this. Uh, certainly, Sherman did not care enough about the order to protect it or fight for it once Andrew Johnson repealed it in 1866. Indeed, given his rather generous feelings toward white Southerners after the war, it seems likely that land redistribution was quite far down on his priorities list. Exactly. Um, so, uh, talk a little about. Sherman's such an interesting and contradictory uh, figure during this time and and after the war as well. But uh, talk about his ambivalent feelings about white Southerners, even even as the march was was going on and after. I mean, Sherman really liked white Southerners. He'd been stationed in the South after he graduated from West Point in in uh, Charleston and actually even in Augusta, Georgia. When the war began, he was serving as superintendent of the Louisiana Military Academy, which became LSU. So he doesn't ever really have an issue with white Southerners per se. He certainly has, has, you know, he's no abolitionist, although ironically he becomes this emancipator. Uh, And so after the war, 
he feels very generously towards white Southerners. Even when the, the march is going on, I think there's a sense you get from Sherman. What I like about Sherman is that he's very clear-eyed and he's very upfront about things. So his attitude towards white Southerners is, you don't like this march? You can stop it. And the way you stop it is to surrender and end the war. And, and it's sort of nothing personal, <laughs> ironically. After the war, again, he feels very warmly towards a lot of white Southerners. Finally, in 1879, when he's serving as general-in-chief of the United States Army, he takes a tour of the South, and he goes back to Atlanta in 1879, and he's greeted very, very warmly. They have all kinds of receptions and parties for him, and they, you know, they, people crack little jokes about like, oh, Sherman's coming, hide the matches. But he's really very warmly received. And he's, he comes back one last time in 1881 for the Cotton States Exposition. And his reception there is, historians have argued it's slightly chillier. It, it's a little chillier maybe. And the reason that most people ascribe it to, and I, I didn't see any evidence that it would be different, has to do with the fact that by that point, Jefferson Davis has published his history of the war, where he really comes out hard against Sherman. Fascinating. Yeah, thank you. Um, talk a little bit with us about common soldiers' uh, perspectives of the march. I think this might have been my favorite chapter, which is that the, the common soldier's view of the march is that you get this sense when you read their diaries at the time, and you especially get this sense when you read their memoirs and reminiscences after the war. But their sense was that the march was fun. <laughs> it was, they often call it a picnic or a lark. And from their perspective, you can understand why. These guys, most of them have been at war for three years. Um, they're marching only 10 or so miles a day, which is about half of what they could be expected to do. They have lots and lots and lots to eat, which, which again is not usual for them. And often their diaries are just pages and pages of detailing, you know, all this great variety of foodstuffs. And then nobody is really shooting at them. There are very few battles along the march. So for them, it's great. And, and what I try to convey also not to minimize the destruction that they cause because they are tremendously destructive, but you can also see why young men in their late teens and early twenties with a lot of access to alcohol and not a lot of people really controlling them can so easily get out of hand. So for them, it's sort of like a, a giant fraternity party. <laughs> and they also feel though, the, the one thing that they don't feel is any kind of regret. I think, a real remorse for it. What they, in fact, believe is that they won the war. Um, and in that, I was most, they reminded me so much of, of the men who flew the Enola Gay, who sort of said, this was what we had to do, and we won the war. We saved lives by doing it. And I think you get that same sense of pride from Sherman's veterans. Mm. And, and uh, it does become uh, harsher, doesn't it? And their, their mind mindset changes a little bit as they move into South Carolina. Yes, they're definitely angrier at South Carolina. And there's a kind of, I'm not saying the march wasn't mean in Georgia, but the march was meaner in South Carolina. It, it felt more vindictive. It felt more personal because they believed that South Carolina caused the war, that South Carolina was the start of the war and that 
Sherman writes about it in his memoirs. I think he's really disingenuous because he, he says, well, you know, I didn't want to sort of impede their vigor. So we just let them have a much freer hand in South Carolina. And, and then the idea was that once they came into North Carolina, because there were unionists in North Carolina, that they were supposed to kind of put the gloves back on and to, to settle themselves down a bit. And they do to an extent but I think it's sometimes hard to rein that back in. Uh, so, Anne, without minimizing the destruction uh, in Sherman's March or the hardships that it imposed on people, to use the term, as I think way too many people do in a very sloppy way, total war, as we think of it in the 20th century, is really not an appropriate term, is it, to, to think about this event? No, it's not appropriate at all. I think that's the biggest misconception about Sherman and Sherman's march in two ways. First, the idea that Sherman somehow invented this kind of warfare and was the first person to do it because he's not. I mean, this kind of the, you know, I think lots of people still go back to Mark Grimsley's book from the 90s, The Hard Hand of War, where he talks about how union military policy evolved. And you see this same kind of harshness towards civilians. Um, you certainly see it in Missouri. You see it in the Shenandoah Valley. It's just, and, and this is a lot of what I talk about in the book. There's this kind of, I think, inherent drama to Sherman's march because it's so big and goes on for so long. But it's not total war. You know, Sherman is not killing civilians. They're not lining people up and shooting them. This is not sort of ethnic cleansing. It's not the kind of making war on civilians that that sadly becomes so commonplace in the 20th century. And that's, you know, I I mentioned earlier how I I was partly inspired to write this from reading Sherman's March in Vietnam. And that's one of the the things I found frustrating about this book, that book rather, was, was that kind of assumption. So no, I mean, I don't think Sherman, I think Sherman, Sherman knew the laws of war as they were in the 1860s very, very well. And I think he skated right up to the line, but did not step over it. There's the only times that I think he might've stepped over the line is there are a couple of cases where um, they come across minefields and he uses Confederate prisoners of war to walk through the minefield. Uh, uh-huh. Okay, thank you. Um, and I was, uh, one of my favorite parts of the book, because I'm interested in, in the fascination with ruins and the landscape, and there are so many travel writers going throughout the South. Talk about the post-war uh, travel writers and, and what, what they're thinking about as they, as they follow uh, Sherman's march through the physical ruins. Yeah, I think for travelers, it's really interesting. They start retracing the march. One of the earliest post-war travel accounts is is by a guy named Kenaway, and it's called On Sherman's Track. I think it's 1867 or something around there. Um, They're looking for all sorts of things when they travel in the 19th century. They're looking to see the ruins and the devastation. They all complain about how bad the railroads are, and there are these kind of stock passages about the chimneys and whatnot. But they're also often they're looking to see evidence of emancipation, Um, Often they also want to see evidence of rebuilding. And so Atlanta is always, I mean, how could you not not visit Atlanta? But they talk a lot about Atlanta and how quickly Atlanta rebuilds. And by the 1870s, they're describing Atlanta as, you know, the Chicago of the South. And and that's meant as a real compliment. Um, And they often draw a contrast between that and Columbia, which is much, much 
Sorry. They often draw a contrast between that and Columbia, which is much, much slower to rebuild. Um, and they're really, as time goes by, they're looking for different, different things. And I think the, the 20th century travelers who are still looking for ruins have, I think, this, this kind of romanticized idea of what the South should be like. So, you know, someone travels in the 1830s and sees burned out chimneys and thinks that they're all from Sherman without ever conceiving that, I don't know, something could have burned in the intervening years. And then in the 20, the late 20th century, you've had these people more on these voyages of self-discovery and, and voyages of masculinity. One thing I did find interesting is very few women retraced Sherman's march. It's much more much more men. And yet you yourself became a kind and of yet I myself did. And I found it, I, I was a little, I'm as guilty, I guess, of the romanticization as anybody, because I also was sort of surprised to not find all that much, um, not to find all that many ruins, not to find markers, even the historical markers, Georgia had put up hundreds of historical markers in the 1950s, and a lot of them were gone. And the ones that were there tended to memorialize troop movements. So, you know, the 15th Corps was here on such and such a day, as opposed to what I wanted to see, which was more the kinds of stories of people. I found that that more of that in South Carolina than in Georgia. And North Carolina has battlefields. It has Aversboro Battlefield and also Bentonville Battlefield. Um, Georgia has Griswoldville. But I, I think it's harder to, I guess, memorialize these individualized stories. Yeah, yeah. Listeners who are moved to to read the book will find wonderful examples of uh, Sherman's March in public memory, popular culture, particularly Gone with the Wind. And if, if you want to talk about that, that's great. Um, uh, commemorative expression and music and painting and all kinds of things. Is there any particular and a form of public memory that sticks out to you as, as really revelatory? I really liked Herman Melville's two poems about Sherman's March. Um, I've always had a soft spot for Melville's collection, Battle Pieces. Um, my father introduced it to me a long time ago, I think when I was still in college. And what Melville does that I think is really interesting is he has two poems about Sherman's March. And the first is very celebratory and is all about sort of, it's very much in the kind of marching through Georgia vein and, and really from the perspective of the soldiers. And then the second one um, called The Fire in the in the wake or the fire in its wake, something like that is the, um, is really from the perspective of civilians and is about the destruction and the devastation and the, the sort of fear and the anger that it all engendered. And I, I really like that pairing that he's able to write about both was one thing that I liked. I, I, um, I have to say that I read a lot of Sherman's March novels and most of them were not very good. <laughs> Um, some of them were pretty thick going, although I do love, I, I love Cynthia Bass's Sherman's March novel uh, called Sherman's March from the nineties. Um, I like it better than Dr. O's book because I think it, it's a smaller book and I think it, it captures the sort of smaller experiences better than Dr. O who on the one hand, his descriptive passages I think are, are amazing and beautiful, but I think his, he gets really plotty 
plotty at, at parts that, that there's just parts of his plot that I, I find um, I can't really buy. Yeah. When I was reading, yeah, when I was reading some of the uh, uh, poetry and it reminded me of when I was uh, working on the little bighorn and reading poetry about George Armstrong Custer without question, some of the worst poetry in the history of Western civilization. Yeah. Um, I mean, although a lot of it is really bad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So at, at the end of the book, right at the end of the book, uh, you say the following, I write all of this in 2013 in the thick of the civil war sesquicentennial, the commemorations of emancipation have just begun the bulk of the war's major battles are still ahead. Sherman's march as a metaphor still lives on, featured prominently as a symbol of scorched earth and destruction. One can only hope that the next generation remembers that it was not quite that simple. So I know it's it, it's just getting going now. We're only a, a year later, but uh, what have you seen uh, in terms of of how this memory is uh, going to unfold in the next uh, few years. I think the signs of it are, are pretty encouraging. Um, I was just in Georgia last week. I was in um, Augusta and Milledgeville <laughs> giving talks. And then I was in Atlanta for a conference and um, the, the audiences in, in Augusta and Milledgeville were terrific. They were very knowledgeable, but, you know, I was a little fearful that they were going to throw tomatoes at me or something because, of course, I don't have this blanket condemnation of Sherman. And in fact, they're very attuned, I think, to the subtleties of the march and the way that people remember the march and, and talk about it. Um, I think, you know, the New York Times has, has done a lot of coverage of the march, both in disunion and they had an article over the weekend about this new kind of history of Sherman's march, this more subtle, more... Um, complicated view of the march, which again, I think is, is all to the good. Um, it's interesting, you know, the, the one thing I've also come to realize traveling around is, of course, Sherman's march is much more important to people in Georgia and South Carolina and North Carolina than it is to people like, say, where I grew up in New York. And in fact, I mean, I, I grew up just outside of New York City. I went past that statue of Sherman on 59th street. I mean, more times than I could ever imagine or count in my life. And it was not until I started working on this book that I realized that that statue was Sherman and just never gave it a second worth of thought beforehand. And I think on some level that's really telling. The stories made, made the, uh, uh, the statue come alive, didn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And and the same thing, you know, now I live just outside of Washington, D.C., and it's actually kind of hard to see the Sherman statue in Washington, D.C. because of how the streets are blocked off now for security. But again, I had no idea it was there. I mean, again, there you know, there's so many statues in Washington, D.C. that who notices another one? Yeah, yeah. How these how these statues are, are publicly invisible is really quite interesting. Um so let me uh, re tell listeners, uh, some of them probably already know this, that you are the co-author of a CD-ROM, The Valley of the Shadow, The Eve of War, which received the first E. Lincoln Prize for the best digital project in American Civil War history. Uh, and so no surprise, you've created for the new book uh, a website called 
um, Sherman's March and America Mapping Memory. Can you tell listeners a little bit uh, about this and then give them the address of the site for them to noodle around in? Well, the site is shermansmarch.org. And it's very different from the Valley of the Shadow. It, it's, the Valley Project, if you're not familiar with it, is an enormous archive tracing the Civil War in two communities, one northern and one southern. This is much smaller in scale. And what I wanted to do, I knew I didn't want to build a Sherman's March archive. And so what I wound up doing is working with a group on UMBC's campus called the Imaging Research Center, which among the many things that they do are all kinds of really interesting digital visualizations. And they put me together with a professor of visual arts, a woman named Kelly Bell. And what Kelly and I, sorry, that's the dog. What Kelly and I put together um, is a way to look at Sherman's March and retrace Sherman's March, just the Georgia part, but with putting stories and narrative and the different kinds of narratives in the foreground. So there's different maps representing different points of view. Um, there's one map from the perspective of travelers, one from the perspective of civilians, one that is kind of a basic level map, one about soldiers, and then the last one is about the march as it plays out in fiction and popular culture. And then what we have are points, like little map pins, and if you click on a pin, you get one of two things. You either get a pretty simple screen that tells a story in you know, a few paragraphs, or you get um, a mini documentary, a small film, usually about three minutes long, that tells one of these stories, but often in really innovative different innovative kinds of animation. We didn't want it to just be the sort of talking head. Um, and that's where working with somebody from visual arts has been terrific. So Kelly made films. We've had interns make films. We had a class of senior visual arts majors make films. Um, so all of that is put together and it's just about finished. We're still furiously filling in the last few points. Um, and then what we also have, and I've just started doing since the anniversary of the march began on November 15th, is there's a blog. And every day, if you check the blog, there's just a quote, a couple of paragraphs from a primary source describing what happened that day and where and, and trying again to get it from different perspectives. So, for example, today's is um, a proclamation made by one of Georgia's uh, Confederate senators, a guy named B.H. Hill, calling on Georgians to resist Sherman's army. You know, tomorrow will be um, the account, a uh, woman describing having the soldiers coming through her house. A couple days later, it'll be um, one of the soldiers talking about fighting in the Battle of Griswoldville and so forth. So if you just check back every day. It's an w- absolutely fantastic project uh, and and makes us come alive in such important ways for visual learners of, of which our students are the great majority now, aren't they? Um, yeah. So we have been talking today with Ann Sarah Rubin, associate professor of history at the university of Maryland, Baltimore County. She's the author of a shattered nation, the rise and fall of the Confederacy, 1861 to 1868, which received the 2006 Avery O'Craven Book Prize in Civil War History. Today's podcast focused on her new book, Through the Heart of Dixie, Sherman's March and American Memory. And thank you so much for taking the time to do this. It's been a pleasure. It was my pleasure also. Thank you so much for inviting me. 
This podcast is produced by the Journal of American History, the leading scholarly publication and the journal of record in American history. Visit us on the web at www.journalofamericanhistory.org. Support the journal by becoming a member of the Organization of American Historians. To join, call us at 812-855-7311 or visit us online at www.oah.org. In addition to receiving the journal four times a year, OAH members have access to a growing number of member benefits, ranging from discounts on a wide variety of insurance products to discounted subscriptions to the ACLS Humanities eBook Library to reduce registration fees for the annual meeting held every spring. Thank you for listening to the Journal of American History podcast. Please join us in December for our next episode. If you have any comments or questions, please send an email to jahcast at oah.org. Thank you.